All righty, let's get started. We are going to be picking up the story in Acts chapter 14. We are at Calvary Chapel. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the scriptures. And we are in a most exciting portion of scripture. The gospel is going out for the very first time from a Gentile, mostly Gentile congregation. They, single-handedly really, with a couple guys, are going to evangelize the then known world. It's exciting. So we're gonna ask the Lord for his blessing and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, um, this is our gospel. You are our God and Savior. Uh, this is our calling that we share as Paul and Barnabas make their way uh, through the world with a task that is our task, with a Bible that is our Bible, with a gospel that is our gospel, with consequences that are our consequences as well. So open our hearts to glean from their mission what our mission truly consists of. Help us to learn. Give us eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that understand. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever wondered why Jesus came when Jesus did come in that time of history, the first century? Did you ever wonder why then Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent his son? When, when, when it was just ripe, it was just ripe. What made it that back then in the first century, what made it just the right time? Well, I'm glad you're wondering that because I've got some answers for you. All right, we've got a picture of the Roman Empire. Now, because of uh, the Roman Empire dominating mu much of the then known world, um, they were able to have a common Greek language. Everybody spoke multiple languages, but Greek was a standardized language. And so there was an ability to communicate throughout the world because there was now suddenly one language. Uh, more importantly, the roads. The Romans were genius with making roads, elaborate roadways. In fact, there's a picture here. Uh, they're still around. They were built so well, layers and layers of different rock and concrete and all kinds of engineering uh, marvels back 2,000 years ago. So now Jesus has come along with a gospel that he commissions to his people to take throughout the world. And before there was one common language and a network of roads by which to take that gospel, it would have been really practically impossible to do that uh, in eras past. And so Jesus said, go into all the world, and time was ripe. God's son had come and commissioned his disciples, now take it to the world, and thanks to one language and many roads, and of course, not to mention that Daniel, chapter nine, uh, prophesied the exact number of days until the appearance of Jesus. And Jesus lands up uh, fulfilling Daniel's prophecy from chapter nine on Palm Sunday to the exact day that was given Daniel back in uh, chapter nine. So that was free information to do with as you like, uh, but that is the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of time as well. The roads and the language just thrown in there uh, to make it all possible. We are in the first missionary journey now, so time for the pointer and the map again. Chapter 13 began one of three missionary journeys from Acts 13 to Acts 20. That big chunk is about how the gospel goes to the world. How, how did it start? Well, you're finding out. In chapter 13, we started here at Antioch, Syria, all right? And three men, Barnabas, uh, Barnabas Paul, and Barnabas's nephew, John Mark, start off and they make the trip to Cyprus. We learned about that in chapter 13. Chapter 13 took us all the way landbound, and then John Mark got a little homesick and went home to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's down there, all right? And so the two guys, Barnabas and Paul, go up the Roman road, thank you very much, up the road to Antioch, 
Pisidia. That's a different Antioch, obviously. And chapter 13 was all about the sermon that Paul preached in that uh, synagogue where many Jews, and it was a platform where also Gentiles came to hear that many people got saved. And uh, unfortunately, the bad guys uh, got everybody riled up and they got thrown out of town. Chapter 14 takes us now from where they get thrown out of town to a place called Iconium, where they get thrown out of town, to a place named Lystra, where they get thrown out of town, and a place named Derby where they get thrown out. <laughs> There's a pattern in spreading the gospel. You, you know, it's not uh, the most welcome uh, message, and it's called good news. But there's a part of the good news that's a little bit bad news for people who are all about themselves and their sin uh, and their own agenda and their own pride. And so uh, chapter 14, what I want you to get here, chapter 14 is from Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derby, and then the return route home. All right, that's chapter 14, and we're gonna try to get through that. So that's our portion from Antioch to Derby, back all the way to the sending church. This one church evangelizing the world. And so all the letters, this is all Turkey, modern day Turkey. All the letters that you have in the New Testament all those churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First uh, and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, all of those are being established now. And the one that, that is, you're seeing being established is Galatia. This is Galatia in here. See Galatia? Right in here, Southern Galatia in here. So what you're reading about is the origin or the genesis of the, of the church at Galatia to which Paul will address the book of Galatians. So it's just exciting stuff. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read chapter 14 a little bit at a time. I think that there's a big lesson in each section. So I, what I've got here is there's lots of things, lots of insights, but what I'd like to do is for each section, for Iconium and Derby, and then the round trip, going home, I've come up with a main point. All right, so that's how we're gonna look at We're gonna pick up the text now. Do you remember what happened? They just kicked them out of town. The word is uh, just very, with a lot of hostility. They've got them out of town and they're gonna take off now to Iconium. And here's where the verse starts. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogues. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the unbelieving Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. <laughs> That's kind of funny. All right, so now they're in trouble and there's, there's a hardship there and people are against them and then it says, so they spent more time there. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, the unbelievers, and others with the apostles, the Christians. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews, together with the leaders, to mistreat them and stone them, kill them. But they found out about it, Paul and Barnabas, they did, and they fled to Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. So let's pause there and... The big lesson for me at Iconium is that the gospel brings division. That's in your text, and we can just keep the map up there just for uh, illustration. Uh, the people of the city are divided, as it must be. You got, really got to get that into your heart, really, that the gospel comes and it divides us. Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, uh, I am a king, for this reason I was born, and everybody on the side of truth listens to me. So in this life, 
the gospel will always polarize. It will always pull right and left, always. And there's not a thing you can do about that. Uh, and we're going to see that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. So what, what happened here at Iconium? Well, the first thing we see, kind of funny, if you recall, back at Pisidian, where they just got kicked out, Paul said to the Jews, fine. You guys don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life? You know what, Jews? We're going to the Gentiles. They shook the dust off their feet and said, washed their hands of their responsibility with the gospel and said, we're now going to the Gentiles. Well, what happens? They end up going uh, 80 miles southeast. They end up, if, this, if we followed their coordinates to uh, Iconium, we would be in Livermore. All right, exactly. That's how far, that's where they went. And they wind up, what do they do? As usual, Paul cannot help himself. You just said, fine, we're not talking to Jews anymore. We're going to the Gentiles. And as soon as he sees the doors open and the sign saying open and the little star of David and he hears the Hebrew and they're opening the scroll of Isaiah. He's like, oh, I gotta go. I gotta go. They're my people. They're my homies. I spent my whole life. Sorry, he probably didn't say homies. <laughs> he would have said they're my mashpuka, which is in Yiddish. It means family. Now, I used to think my dad was making words up <laughs> because he would say these words, and I didn't really, he didn't connect with Jews. We didn't connect with Jews, but uh, he would say mishpuka or mishugana, or he had all of these words. And then one day, as I'm out of the house, grown, I heard somebody, a Jew, say uh, mishpuka. And I went, what? Do you know my dad? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, that's Yiddish. What's Yiddish? It's a form of Hebrew. Oh, dad was speaking Yiddish. I didn't even know it. So there was this, the, these um, family. And so what does Paul say? Paul says, yeah, I know. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. That's my title. Three times in the New Testament. He says, I got my gig. I know what. God called me not to the Jews, per se, but to the goyim, the Gentiles, the nations. That's my job. Peter's got the Jews. And he goes, you know what? I can't help myself. You go into town, they got everything. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter nine. He says, I give my testimony. I'm not lying. I have unceasing sorrow and great anguish all the time in my heart for the Jews, my fellow Israelites. And then he goes, think about it. What a tragedy. He says, um, they're the people of God, Israel. Chosen, adopted to be God's children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them. He gave them his law, his commandments. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite, a Jew, according to his human nature. He's the God-man, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He didn't have an earthly father. But his mama was a Jewess. He was a Jew. And here he comes to his own, and his own don't receive him. And Paul just says, it breaks my heart all the time. I just want to go in there and say, hey, oftentimes when people come out of something, they have a real uh, affinity or a soft spot in their heart for those who are like them in their state of lostness. And so you have uh, folks who have struggled with addiction end up one, having this great burden for those who have addiction problems or those who come out of a, a moral background where they try to impress God with their self-righteous acts of charity, paying their taxes, being a good person and all of that. And when that person gets saved, and then runs into somebody like that, their heart just stirred up and say, hey, oh man, can I relate? Let me help you. And so we, we just see that happening. Paul, I, I have in big letters down here, Paul has a burden. Do I? Without a burden, then we're just talking words, philosophies, a religion. Come on. But when it's alive in you and you care, you know, so as usual, they head straight for the synagogue. 
Um, and it goes pretty well in there. It says in your text, he speaks so effectively that many believe. Well, at first I was a little uh, discouraged by that term. He spoke so effectively, people got saved. What does that imply? There's, a, there's an effective way and there's a non-effective way. And the effective way yields many people getting saved. Then I was relieved to be reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it kind of defines what he means by speaking effectively. And this would be good for you to hear because you're supposed to be sharing the gospel and people are waiting to hear. To speak effectively, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, when I came to you at Corinth, he says, it wasn't with eloquence. It wasn't with fancy words, with fine sounding arguments, none of that. I was stammering and stuttering, and I was very afraid, stuttering. He said, it wasn't with eloquent words, but with the power of God. And so I started thinking, what makes somebody effective when we share the gospel? Think about it. Anybody, anybody, whoever's in this room, if you know Jesus Christ, you can speak as effectively as the Apostle Paul. How? Number one, he had a burden. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. This guy, he said, Romans chapter 9, if I could go to hell and trade my eternal soul so that Israel could get saved, I would do it. That's love. <laughs> when people hear that kind of love that you care about where they, where they spend eternity, that you care about their soul, that you care about they're missing out on this love of God, and they sense this, this message behind these words is a heart that loves me and is concerned for me. Ah, that's the first way you speak effectively. Because, wow, now I feel cared about, not just like you're giving me some talking points from your religious studies. The second thing that I think makes you effective is if you just mention the word of God a lot. Uh, Hebrews chapter four says the word of God is powerful. Romans chapter one, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God. We don't even know what we're playing with there. So if the message isn't up to you. You don't have to think about, oh, well, how do I say what? I, just borrow what he said and put it out there. Give voice to that and you'll be effective. You know, hey, man, that's all I know is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Bam. There's power. All they got to do is light the match of faith, and man, boom, the whole place is going to go up because it's the word of God <laughs> in a good way. Amen? Number three, uh, focus on the grace of God. It says in your text that they're talking about the, the ministry of God's grace. Oh, God loves you. You don't have to make peace with God. He's already made peace with you. We're ministers of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and around verse 21 if you start reading there, Christ has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is this, that as Christ's ambassador, we take God's hand, we take the sinner's hand, we say, we'd like to introduce you two together. We beg you on Christ's behalf, accept the peace he's made with you. He loves you, he's not angry at you. He's on your side. He wants to make you blessed and he wants to make you successful in, 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 in prosperous in the way of a healthy life, whatever that looks like. And so uh, focus on the grace of God. And then finally, just what makes you effective, I think, is he, they keep speaking boldly. The more and more pressure they put on him, the more and more they're bold. Why are they bold? Ah, he who has the son has life. John 3, 36. He who has the life, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son shall not see life for the wrath of God remains upon him. Bold. This is important. Yeah, but they hate you. They're mad at you. They're rejecting. There's a lot of trouble because of what you're saying. Yeah, bold. You know why? Because your soul's on the line. You're the ones who believe that you, you say you believe in the word of God. Jesus speaking, whose, whoever's name is not found in the Lamb's book of life 
will be thrown into the lake of fire. Bold, yeah, little bold. When I, when I know that, when I believe it, when I'm looking at the person who's saying, I don't need God, and I understand that name is not in the book right now, then I'm bold. Does it matter that, oh, what kind of rejection or hostility, or if I speak, nothing matters but his soul or her soul, right? And so I think if you just take those th- things, a heart motivated by love, the word of God, an emphasis on grace, and speaking with boldness, not to mention that unless the Holy Spirit does some work, then it's all in vain anyway. But a, heart, a, a life that's yielded, you can speak effectively too. So it says many believed in your text, and therefore here comes the pushback, because whenever God does a genuine work, the enemy, the adversary, the slanderer, and I just defined both devil and Satan. It means enemy, adversary, and slanderer. He comes around and fills hearts and poisons them and tries to hinder God's saving work. God wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Second Timothy chapter two and verse two, right in there. But the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy. So when God is working, The enemy, the devil, is always working. And what happens here? He stirs up trouble for the brothers. He poisons their minds against them. Nothing new. Not everybody wants to hear the word of grace. It's like, well, why would you not want to receive the word of grace, right? Well, let me tell you, biblical grace is a problem. Biblical grace says... Even though you're a helpless, hopeless, wretched, depraved sinner who can do nothing right, God's grace is for you. Now, they love the, oh, God's grace, God's grace. Tell me about God's grace. Yeah, God's grace appeared in that even though you're a wretched sinner who constantly falls short and can never be good enough to qualify, God has qualified you through Christ. Well, sir, I like the grace part, but I didn't like all the other parts you said. Right? So they get offended. The grace of God comes through, and then they're like, oh, thank you. Grace of God comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. Uh, Excuse me, did you say him alone? What about Zeus? What, What about Buddha? What about Islam? What about that? No, it's through him alone. He's made a way. God poured out his blood, so there's only one way, because that's the way you're forgiven. Oh, I like the grace part. But it didn't like the other part you said. Well, that, they're tied, sir. They're tied together. The grace of God that transforms you from sexual immorality to holiness, to self-control. Oh, yes, I want to hear about the grace of God. I really do. Oh, the grace of God. What? I've got to change? I've got to stop sinning? Yes, he will heal you of your sexual orientation confusions. What you say? <laughs> Not happy about that. It's the grace of God that you can be born the first time confused. Whatever your situation is, but you can be born a second time with the power of the Holy Spirit where you'll be a new creation. The first time, the first way you were born will be irrelevant. I've got good news about the grace of God. Well, we love the grace of God, but we just didn't like the second part of that. And so... There's poisoning of the mind because of that particular message. Let me just define the grace of God for you. We'll read it. I'll read it for you. I'll pull it right out of Timothy for you. And and this is the grace of God that the world says I don't want. The grace of God that brings salvation. Okay, now we're going to get it defined. Oh, yes, tell me about the grace of God. I want to hear it. Oh, I'm so happy for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Yes, all of us. Oh, I love the sound of that. Oh, okay. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, wait a second, sir. You said grace. That means come as you are. That means kind of anything goes. That God accepts me the way I am with my natural inclinations that I've always known. Ever since I was born, I was this way. Sir, the grace of God, yes, I love it, and it covers me, has appeared to teach us 
that when his grace comes in, we are morally transformed. We become new. We become self-controlled. We reflect his character and his nature now. That's what grace is. While we're waiting for the blessed hope, his glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, their deity of Christ, where does God, where does Jesus ever say that he is God? Well, right there. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all of that stuff you think that grace just covers. He died to get rid of that. So why would you say grace enables me to be whoever I am, whatever that is? And so there's a misunderstanding. So grace comes, and some people say yes, and some people say no. Thank you for that. You can put the map back up. Now, notice that Paul's message is accompanied by power. Uh, He spends considerable time there anyway, speaking boldly, and the Lord confirms with signs and miraculous uh, wonders. You know what? Yeah, the gospel better have some oomph in, in your life, better have some oomph if you're all talking about Jesus because Paul tells us the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 20. Of course there's power. Of course there were miraculous things. I could tell you answers to prayer that just spin your head right now, and so could you to us. Because with the gospel, there's power. There's life. There's change. The living God who spoke heaven and earth into being has taken up residence in your heart and life, and you're talking about him to somebody. There better be some oomph and some power or some answer to prayer or some power over sin. You know, I was talking to two Mormons, uh, two Mormon boys who were minding their own business downtown. Until I saw them, they were parked out in front of uh, the Press Democrat downtown. And I said, you know what, we could stand here and talk for two hours, but let's cut to the chase. I want to ask you guys a question. Tell me the difference Jesus Christ has made in your life. Tell me the power you have to live a godly life. I'm listening. I already know they're going to say nothing. You know why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't think of the Lord. Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons do not think about Jesus in the way that born-again Christians think about Jesus. We think of our loving Savior who set me free and made me a new creation. You're never going to hear that out of their lips, ever. Because they're telling you about a religion. They're not telling you out of a power, life transformation uh, experience for the living God got a hold of them and made them a new creation. We're the only wackos who talk like that. (laughs) So I look at them and I say, if I were to look at your computers, both of you young men, and do a sweep for the last six months, am I going to find things keeping with the godliness and the holiness of the Most High God? Yes or no? Don't you be telling me about your little religious ideas if you can't even live it, you can't even stop yourself from clicking, then, sir, you don't have the God that I serve because with the God that I serve comes the Holy Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body so that I can live in peace and power and in victory. Do you want to say amen right now? I'd be okay with it. Thank you. All right. So you've got to have some power. So uh, let's move on. But when all is said and done in Iconium, the big deal was that they cited there was, a, there was a split. There was a nasty divide. Jesus put it this way, and I love when, when Jesus says hard things, it really brings sanity to my soul. It makes me know, hey, everything's okay with my life. Jesus said, don't get the wrong idea about me and why I came. I didn't come to bring peace and join everybody's hands at the table. I really came to bring a very sharp sword. And uh, I came to divide a dad from his boy, a mom from her girl. That's why I came. I came with the truth, with an option to the kitchen table. And I say to the family, hey, I'm God. There's only one way to be saved. I created you, 
I love you, I died for you, I shed my blood for you. Uh, for anybody at this kitchen table who would like to yield your life completely, repent of your sin, trust in me, you'll live forever. Any takers? Boy says yes, dad says no. Girl says yes, mom says no. And the ones who exclude themselves from the grace of God are the angry ones. And you're not going to fix it. You'll just be accused of being narrow-minded. Where's the love you Christians preach? Well, I'm sorry. Jesus said he came with a sword. And, and I, I want to be loving, respectful. Yes, you may come to Thanksgiving. You know, if you're going to get drunk or you're going to do this or you're going to do that, and you're not welcome, but let's all get along. I'm open, I'm kind, I'm respectful of all people. But I can't make the wall of separation go away. You either side with him in the gospel or you don't. And that will split us. And at the end of time, the God of glory will stand and mankind before him and he will say, my people to the right, the sheep to the right, the goats, the left, those who, yeah, they go to the left, the goats. <laughs> <laughs> you know, ever have a thought that goes straight down and then it disappears it's like a morning vapor? <laughs> it happens even to uh, me. <laughs> Enter eternal life to the right, and to the left you'll find the door that leads to, quote, quoting Jesus Christ, Son of God, Matthew 25, that leads to eternal punishment in this life, in the life to come, and there's not a thing you can do about it. The way it is. The way it is. False teachers will tell you, you know what? This is getting a little intense, folks. This is heating up, all right? So let's just change the rules a little bit so that we can all hold hands here. We're going to bridge that divide. Not the gospel. All right, so the gospel divides. We got that. Notice the plot to kill them as Jew and Gentile alike because the gospel offends the religious self-righteous just as much as the pagan sinners as well. They catch wind of it and they flee. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23 says, when they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. And so they do. And so they plug into MapQuest uh, Lystra and Sirius says, turn right, uh, follow for 40 miles. And uh, here they are in Lystra, 8 through 20. Now they're in Lystra. There sat a man, crippled in his feet, lame from birth, and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, what are you doing this for? We're only human beings like you. We're bringing good news, telling you to turn from these kinds of worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Now in the past, he let all nations go their way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up 
and went back into the city the next day. I know, yeah. He got up and ran for his life. He got up and went home, right? No, he went and got up and went to the hospital. No, he got up and went back into that city. Paul, you're crazy. <laughs> the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. All right, so lots of good stuff here. But the big takeaway for me, if I were taking notes, I would write number two. The gospel brings freedom from worthless things. All right, let's kind of see what happened. In this amazing story, uh, Paul needs a platform. These are all goyim. There's no Jewish neighborhood in Lystra. They're all 100% Gentiles. So there's no jumping off place. There's no book of Isaiah. There's nothing. So Paul, uh, Paul needs a platform, and the Holy Spirit's like, no problem. I got this. All right? I, I could bring a crowd. Really easy, Paul. So just start preaching the gospel. Notice he's not preaching healing. He did, he's not having a healing crusade. He's having a gospel crusade. He's telling them, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. These kinds of things. And this man is going to get healed as a result of putting his faith in the gospel, the sign comes illustrating that he has received eternal life, which is the main uh, star of the show here, is the gospel. First of all, Dr. Luke wants you to know something. This was an impossible situation with this lame guy. Three different ways he tells you about it. Number one, he says, oh, he was crippled in his feet. The word means impotent or, or weak. It, he has no strength in his feet. Second, he says, oh, and by the way, he was lame from birth, born. Just when he, when he was born, you just saw legs that had nothing to them. And then he says, and by the way, he's never walked. Three different ways to say <clears throat> lame, lame, lame. He's never walked. He is not walking now, nor shall he ever walk. Because, sir, there were no, there were no muscles. It's an atrophied mess of, of kind of flesh, but there are no muscles. There's no blood flow. There's no ligaments or tendons. There's just a mass of jellied nothing there after not work, walking as a full-grown man. That's what Luke is a physician, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. He's a doctor. He wants you to know, this wasn't a guy who broke his back a couple years ago, and maybe with some time he could get together. And his feet were pretty good condition. His legs were okay, but you know. And then the apostles came at just the right time as he was convalescing. There was a coincidence that, yeah, no. Everybody, that's why the crowd goes crazy, because this guy didn't really have legs. To jump up when you don't have legs, that's something to marvel at. Amen? Yeah. I knew you were out there. Paul's preaching the gospel. He gets this thing going with this guy on the ground. Hey, and God just loves you so much that Jesus laid down his life for you. And he's getting a word from the Holy Spirit to say, that guy, look at that guy. The countenance on his face, it, it, it resembled like, hey, is God, the Holy Spirit in your heart doing like backflips, you know, because you can see the light dancing in his eyes. You've seen that. You know where you're talking about the word or how God has answered a prayer or something, and the person you're talking to is like a sponge, and you just feel the energy of the Holy Spirit. It's just a special moment. You just know, and God gives you like, hey, God's here. This is your moment, man. I remember one time, uh, Pastor Colton Irving is a good friend of mine. Known him for years. He pastors a church in Petaluma called 360. He had a dear friend. He had lifelong contact with, and he told me about him. He said, my dear friend Todd is coming up. And he said, I've been working on him for years and years and years. He's stubborn atheist, but he's coming for a visit. I said, oh, I'd like to meet him. He goes, I hope you do. So <laughs> I gave him a call, and we, started, we played tennis one day. And at the end of the match, I said, so I hear you're not a believer. He goes, oh, I don't know what I think. I go, can I share a little bit with you? And I started, oh. it was so much fun because suddenly I saw a little light in his eyes. And then I started getting the, the little, I had hair back then, so <laughs> I just started feeling, oh, this is the moment. I looked at him, he was soaking it up, he was connecting the dots, and he goes, I said to him, this is your time, isn't it? He goes, yeah, 
it is. I said, you want to get saved today, don't you? And he goes, yes, I do. And I said, you're going to say the sinner's prayer with me. He goes, come on. <laughs> so he said the sinner's prayer. He walks with the Lord to this day. It's like 15, 20 years ago, right? So <laughs> I get a phone call from Colton Irvin. How could you? <laughs> he told, he went home and he said, hey, Colton, I got saved. He goes, what? What do you mean you got saved? He goes, well, I went out with that guy, Ross. Uh, and he goes, what? well, what did you do? You sit down for a bunch of hours or what? He goes, no, he was just at his doorstep and he shared the gospel with me and it made sense. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Colton, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, just kidding. We're joking around. And to this day, we joke about, oh, look, we know we know, we feel, God is at work. So he gets so, he looks at him, and this takes a lot of faith, friends, come on. A guy with kind of no legs to just say in front of everybody, hey, you, yeah, stand up. And the guy's thinking, I get this, I feel this, I want this, let's do this. He jumps up, and he starts walking his stride, rocking his new walk, you know, <laughs> walking down, kind of, oh, I can just see it happening. And the crowd goes wild in a bad way. Now, they speak, as most bilinguals, when you get moved emotionally and you speak two languages, what do you do? You, you go to your mother tongue, right? I remember Ricky Ricardo? Come on. <laughs> when he couldn't take it any longer, suddenly he's speaking like this, and all of a sudden, oh, caramba! You know, and out comes this Spanish. <laughs> Well, that's what happened here. And I hate to quote uh, from I Love Lucy in a sermon, but there you go. Now, interesting. Paul and Barnabas do not speak like Conian. They don't know what's going on. There's enough time to go get the bulls and the wreaths. They don't know. Now, they see the glazed look. They probably sense, uh, something's not quite right. <laughs> you know, so they're naming them. This is Zeus. This is Hermes. Hey, these are gods, man. And now, listen, this is interesting. The crowd is doing, very interestingly, what people do today. Exactly the same thing. They hear the gospel and they interpret it in their own worldview to make it fit with the kind of lifestyle that they want to continue living. And so it doesn't matter what you say. Who changed you? Hey, I used to be this, I used to do that. Jesus did this, this is the only explanation. Oh, you know what, sir? You just had a nervous breakdown. Or, you know what? They redefine your words, and we're going to see that happen right here. So the crowd jumps to the wrong uh, conclusion. And here they go. Uh, Paul probably says now he sees the bulls, he sees the wreaths. He's like, what's up with the barbecue, man? What's going to happen here? And they say in Greek, back to Paul, oh, they're preparing to worship you guys. That's the international ancient sign symbol for I am grieved to the heart. Now, I want you to notice something here. When they slander them, when they poison minds against them, when they hurl them out of town, when they threaten their lives and they chase them 40 miles out of their city, there's none of, oh, they said terrible things about us. Oh, nobody, reje everybody's rejecting us and there's hardship and we can't find a place to stay. No, but when someone ascribes to them the glory only due God, they consider that blasphemy and right? How often do we, we get complimented on our accomplishments, on what we can do, our unique abilities. And, and people say, wow, nobody speaks like that. Or, oh, nobody can paint like you. Or nobody can build a house like you. Or nobody's as smart as you. And you're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, you don't say that, but you start to think it. All glory and honor and power and anything good about me or anything good about you is directly traceable back to God Almighty. And that's a real lesson right there. It's like, that's a blasphemous thing. And so Paul rushes out, and here's what he says real quick. He says, men, in now he's speaking in Greek, 
what on earth are you doing? We're guys like you, we're human beings. Uh, we're telling you good news. You can turn from these kinds of worthless. This is worthless. We're, we brought a message that turns you from worthless ideas and religions like this so that you could serve the maker of heaven and earth. Take a look around you. You know, in the past, I'm paraphrasing, in the past, God has been very patient with goyim nations. But now through Christ and his revelation, he, he expects you to, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, actually, brothers, and I'm paraphrasing still, actually, brothers, the God we're talking to you about has been with you all the time. Who do you think has been sending you the rain through the years? Who do you think blesses your crops? Who do you think fills your stomach with good things? Who do you think makes your life enjoyable? He's saying, that's the God I'm talking to you about, not us, the Lord. And so I find just a little PS that I wrote down for me, when people don't have a biblical understanding, take them to creation. That's Paul's favorite thing to do. In Romans chapter one, he says, what may be known about God is plain to everyone because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, listen to this, his eternal power and God's divine nature have been clearly seen by and, and being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So he says, okay, you don't know anything about Moses, Isaiah, Abraham, or Isaac. So you know what? Look around you. How'd this all happen? Who sends the rain? Do you see the order? You see order, you see structure, you see intelligent design. Let's trace that back to the God I'm telling you about. There's not enough in natural creation to tell you about Jesus, what he did, but there's enough to get you to understand there's a God and that you are not him, all right? Psalm 19, what does Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies uh, proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they are pouring forth speech. Night after night, they display God's knowledge. There's no place on earth that the language of the stars is not preaching. There is a God, there is a God, there is a God, there is a creator, there is a creator, there is a creator. He created you, he created you, he created you. Just by looking around, the Bible says there's no such thing as an atheist. And did you, did you check this out? It says the Jews, check this out, who refused to believe. Oh, so it's not I don't believe, it's I won't believe. From God's point of view, he does not see an unbeliever as I don't believe, I just don't believe. He never sees that. God sees you as a human being who says, Got the facts, looked around, saw in creation, knowing my own psyche that I'm not God, there must be a God, and I choose to say, I will not believe. That's what the Bible says. And so they, uh, they still, they still want to uh, sacrifice to him. Really big point that I kind of took from Matthew Henry. He said, did you notice that when Jesus, who was the God-man, came, nobody did that for him. Nobody said, hey, <laughs> you must be God. We're going to sacrifice to you. Instead, they turned him into a sacrifice. Now, what's the difference? Ah, Zeus and Hermes are more immoral than the people in the crowd. So we like Zeus and Hermes. So we want to make this work because we're going to have a big party afterwards. The barbecue, the dancing girls, the sexual immorality. That's what Zeus does. That's the religion of Zeus and Hermes. But then we had this Jesus who was doing these wonderful things, healing lame people up. But then he started saying things like, come to me, pick up your cross, deny yourself. He started saying things like keeping God's commands if you love me. He started talking about self-control and purity. So yeah, no, we don't want that religion. So we're gonna take the gospel and make it crazy, Zeus and Hermes, crazy, right? Just like they do today. So you can tell somebody about God and his healing power, no thank you, I got the rocks. What do you mean you got rocks? I got crystals. Those are rocks. Yeah, and they heal me. Okay, they heal you. Does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, it does. There's power. There's power in a rock. Yes. Okay? It's Zeus and Hermes all over again. Because why? I get the healing from my higher power, and it's a rock. And rocks can't tell me how to live. Rocks don't tell me, hey, you're a sinner, and you need to bow your knee, and you need to follow my agenda and not your own agenda. You know, the rock just gives me what I want. I put the crystal there, and it's pulsating its healing energies into my life. Does that make sense to you, sir? Yes, it does. Why? Because I get what I want without any moral obligation, no accountability, no sermons, no lecture, no bowing the knee, nothing. Just heal me the way I want it. Karma, the same way. Who's in charge of karma? I asked somebody. They said, I don't know. Is there someone in charge of it? Because it, it sounds intelligent. I do something good, and so somebody somewhere has to figure out, hey, just did something good. We got to get something good to come around. You know, so who's in charge of that? <laughs> Nobody. Nobody's in charge of it. Oh, I see why you like it. Because no one's there to answer to. You get to do your own thing, live the way you want to, and then just do good things, and automatically, you're good. You're good, you don't have a response. That karma isn't saying, hey, why did you do that good thing? Hey, did you do that good thing so that people would see you and praise you? Just wondering. Yeah, karma doesn't say that. Karma just sees you give and says, oh, something good's gonna come your way now. Jesus sees you give and says, well, what's up with that? You did it so that someone else would see you. Gone is your reward. Well, who wants a God like that, right? <laughs> When you could have this mindless, personless uh, Zeus or Hermes. And so it happens all the time. I want a gospel that just lets me do my own thing. Well, Zeus is here, baby. Zeus is alive and well. And if you want to worship Zeus, you could go straight down to the uh, religious center for spiritual living right down the street because they'll tell you anything. You want to be sexually immoral? You want to live with your girlfriend? There's a church right there. You could go and sing the songs we sing, some of them. You can live with your girlfriend, even though you're not married and you haven't made vows and you're not committed to her, but you want what a husband should only be getting. But you're in church, and that's cool. But you know what? It's not cool here, but it's cool down the street. So if you need Zeus, he's available. He's all around us. Now, the gospel brings freedom from worthless kinds of things like that, materialism, immoral pleasures, and all of the same. Now, right at the moment where they're kind of let down, they're like, yeah, we had a barbecue. Hey, pull the kegs out. You know, the ladies are covering up. Now everybody's going home. You know, we were about to have this fantastic time, and you're telling us you're just human beings, and then you're bringing up God again. You know, party's over. <laughs> then the Jews come 100 miles filled with hate. See those two guys? They're messing around with everybody. They're troublemakers. And, you know, they get your hopes up, and then, bam, look at you. You're humiliated, aren't you? They embarrassed you, right? You thought they were gods, and they kind of made themselves out to be gods, and, and now kill them. So they grab Paul. They bring him to a field, and they take stones meant to kill, and they hurl with demonic, frenzied energy. And from my opinion, and many commentators agree, he was killed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, hey, I'm going to tell you a testimony. I ended up going to heaven. I don't know if I was there physically or in, the, in a spirit or in a vision, but I'll tell you what, I saw paradise. I heard things that I, and saw things that I cannot put into words, nor is it legal to speak of. Mm. I always have that verse in my mind when people want to talk to me about the light on the other side. Paul the apostle said, hey, it's against God's law for me to tell you, but you know, I guess maybe the Lord let other people, I don't know. I'm just saying, I always take it uh, with a grain of salt. He told the Corinthians, 14 years ago, I had this experience. 14 years ago from the writing of 2 Corinthians dates back to this time. The word used for the disciples gathering around and he raised up is the word for resurrection from the dead. So we have 
a dead apostle. He gets a vision. Paul says, I'm not done with you, dude. So he sends him back. So he gets up and says, what's the worst that can happen to me? Let's go back in there. (laughs) So he's hobbling in there. I can hear him say, was it something I said? It's unbelievable. I just, I love these guys. You know me and you, we're like, oh, I got a paper cut. I can't go on. (laughs) And if somebody made fun of me at work, I had to take a week off. (laughs) Really? Honestly? They killed him. They killed him. God raised him from the dead. He's bleeding. He's bruised. He's broken bones. And he says, let's go back in there. Furthermore, Now we're going to go home, right? He can go this way, home. Do you see that? In fact, second missionary journey that starts next time, they go from here, they don't sail. They go this way. So he can go the other way. But what does he say? We've got to strengthen and encourage. But Paul, A, I was going to say they attempted to kill you. (laughs) They killed you. God raised you from the dead, but all these places are, are, they want to hurt us. Yeah, we got the church there. And so we're going to take a look at that. Let me just read the paragraph. I've got a couple things to say. I know we've gone long. We had a lot of announcements, but here we go. Let's finish up, all right? They preach the good news in that city. So, so they spend the night in, in the place where they, they stoned him, right? And then the next day, they start to go home, all right? So they go, they, they, he spends the night where they attacked him. And the next morning they leave to go back to the churches. They preach the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Oh, that's Derby. Then they return to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, the sending church. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Let me just pause there. So as they're strengthening the disciples, and by the way, Timothy, our Timothy is here. Timothy is from Lystra. One of the disciples that gathered around while Paul's laying there dying is Timothy. On the second missionary journey, when they come back through there, they're going to pick him up. And he's going to be our beloved Timothy, right? And so I just want you to hear that as they're going through, Paul has a theme of the gospel as he goes home. He's there crippled over in pain, bearing the scars of Jesus Christ on his body like he tells the Galatians. And what is his theme of the gospel going back? He says, hey, (laughs) through many hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. Where's the health and wealth gospel, right? So he's showing them in his body, here's the love I have for you, here's how important you are to God, and here's, unfortunately, the consequences of being true to him, right here. And he's telling them, don't be surprised if this happens to you, because through much hardship and affliction, dying to self in your own body, your thoughts, your family, your, the division, the, the hostility, the work, the jobs, everything. He goes, it's a lot of work. Don't get the wrong idea about being a Christian. There's phenomenal joy, and it's a lot of hardship as well. So he goes home. They go home. They're preaching in every hunt, and, it, and the Bible says in your text, they pray and fast, and they appoint leaders in every church. Because you can't just have a bunch of Christians without leadership. And so they pray and fast, and they commit each little church now. There's been time. Months have gone by. Gifts have been clearly evidenced. And so they, they, they know who the leaders are. And they lay hands on them and commit them. Now there are multiple churches all along this strip with leaders in place. They get on a boat, and they go home. And they have the best slideshow you ever imagined. <laughs> The potluck, unbelievable, and they spend a lot of time there to encouraging the church. Now, 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 check this out. The church there, we were the only church in the whole world. In the whole world, there was one Christian Gentile church. And he goes, they say now, there's more. We got churches. How do we do it? Well, we funded a couple guys, two guys, two guys. We sent them out, and the Holy Spirit took two guys with limited funds and transportation and technology 
just obedience to the Holy Spirit. And there are churches, sister churches, Gentile churches filled with Jews, some Jews, some but mostly Gentiles all along. There's a little church here too. Very first time. No churches before that. That's how it started. And now as time goes on, they're going to say, hey, that was a lot of fun. Let's do that again. And they're going to do it again the second time. They're going through here and they're going to go they're going to get a vision to cross the Adriatic Sea, and they're going to take the gospel to Philippi, which is Europe, for the very first time. And it seems to me like God sent the gospel this way, right? And then it went to England. And then England sent missionaries out all over the world. And then England sent missionaries to America. And America and England are responsible, for the most part, of sending missionaries all over the world. But the gospel from the beginning went west. It's just fascinating to see what God has done. May I close with one verse, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul the apostle will say in our study to come, here's my life verse, he says. You know what? My life is not, listen, my life is not dear to me. The only thing that matters, this is Acts 20, verse 24. One thing matters to me, that I finish the task, that I run the race to testify of the gospel of grace. My life means nothing to me. And that kind of attitude is what changed the face of the world. My life, who cares? One thing counts. God, what did you give me to do? Why'd you create me? I've got something to do for you. Let me do that. Let, let the arrow of my life hit the bullseye for which you intended when you thought me up in the first place. That's all that matters. And, and so I don't care about anything else. All that can go to the side. Within reason, you know what I'm saying. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. Well, okay, yeah. You can come up. <laughs> Thank you for a great love. Thank you for the word of God. And Lord, uh, even though we went a little long today, uh, we're thankful to have that privilege in this country <laughs> to hear the word of God, and to open our hearts. And now, as we close on this song, we do that work of sealing, sealing the truths that you taught us so that we don't forget about them. Use them in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, closing song. Father, use uh, our meager efforts, as small as we are, as little as they are. In our sphere of influence, Lord, let us be found faithful, speaking boldly with the word of God, with a yielded life, with a burden in our hearts. I just thank you, Lord, for the wonderful freedom to live for God away from worthless things that cannot bring life. We commit ourselves, our church, to you. Help us to put these truths into practice, we pray. And now, if there is anybody here, I was going to close in prayer, but I'm sorry, I got checked. If there's somebody here, you know, you're the only one who knows this. You're not right with God. His spirit's never come in your heart because you never really opened it. It's your day. Today's your day. When we were talking about that, you were thinking in your heart, oh, that's like me. I feel this. I'm getting this. I Finally, I want this. Let's do this. Well, now there's an opportunity. It's called the sinner's prayer. Nothing magical. It's just a starting place for you. So if you're here, you're saying, you know what, I don't even know how I ended up here today, but I'm not sure. If I were to die tonight, who knows? But I want to know, and I want to be a dedicated Christian. I open my heart. Then we're bowing our heads right now. We're closing our eyes. It's between you and the Lord and me. You slip your hand up nice and high and say, that's me today. I'm entering eternal life today. I'm giving my heart to the Lord today not playing games. I open up, I receive him, and let him take my sins away. Praise the Lord. I knew there'd be one hand. Is there another? Somebody else? 
All right. Well, we're going to help you out, and we're going to, amen, a couple hands here. I just had to stop, and that's important. <laughs> and now we're going to lead you in the prayer. Mean it in your heart, and you'll be written in the Lamb's Book of Life and safe from the second death. Everybody together, dear Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. I have run from you for many years. And today I stop. I turn from worthless things to the living God, to Jesus who died for me. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me and give me new life. Take control. I surrender all and put my faith in Jesus. Amen. Now, Father, I pray that you fill them with your spirit, help them to be reading the Bible, to tell people about their newfound faith, and that we would be a blessing to disciple them as they grow in this in their faith and here in the church. And may you bless us all now as we leave with your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Don't forget about prayer at the cross for anybody who needs prayer. And also Wednesday night, and we'll see you next Sunday. God bless you.